Well, good morning. Let me get this ready. Well, we are on our fourth carol. We're going to have a short little carol on Silent Night on Christmas Eve. But tonight, not tonight, today, we are going to do O Little Town of Bethlehem. But let's pray first and just for our hearts to be open. God, we just ask that you'd open our heart as we sing Christmas carols and they're so much a part of our traditions. But Lord, may we stop and think about the words that they're teaching and how much of the Christmas story we've learned because we've sung about it every month, or I mean every year of the month of December. And so now open our hearts to say, what do we want to learn? What would you tell us from a little town of Bethlehem? And may our hearts respond to that and not just be one more carol that we sing on our way to January. Change us, Lord, we pray in our attitudes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the uh, lyrics of A Little Town of Bethlehem were written by a guy named Philip Brooks about 150 years ago. Philip Brooks was actually a fairly well-known preacher in his time. He was one of the most dynamic preachers. He was an Episcopal preacher that was at the Church of the Holy Trinity in Philadelphia. Now, that doesn't really have a huge bearing on, on the carol, except that he was very successful in what he did. He recruited a talented organist and promoter named Louis Redner, and the church exploded with growth. And so here he is tasting of all this wonderful success in ministry. But then the Civil War comes. And, of course, it's hard to imagine what that would have been like when the Civil War came. The mood of the whole country was changed, but it even affected church worship services. Uh, It was said that they became more somber because, you know, people are grieving the loss of their sons, a loss of their their fathers, a loss of their husbands and their uncles and, and whomever else was killed in the war. And so it made the, the worship services definitely were a little bit more somber. And so Philip Brooks tried very hard with his very successful entrepreneurial spirit to motivate and to encourage and inspire the congregation, but it started to drain him. So when the war ended, he looked very much forward to the joy and the exuberance and all this stuff that would would take place. Now the war is over and we can be happy, but the joy didn't return. Because soon after the end of the war, as you all know from history, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And then the despair was even greater, especially for Philip Brooks, who preached Abraham Lincoln's funeral. And so after a time, Philip Brooks couldn't really sustain his energy anymore. And so he was so burned out, he couldn't even keep his own spiritual flame of his life going. And so he asked the church for a sabbatical. And he took this sabbatical in the year 1865 um, to the Holy Land. And so one night, you know, he was in Jerusalem, and he rode out on horseback at sunset. He arrived into Bethlehem, which is really only like five miles or something like that outside of Jerusalem. Now, if you go there today, it's a whole lot, it's the same distance, but it takes forever to get to Bethlehem because you have to cross all the Palestinian uh, checkpoints and all of that. But Philip Brooks didn't have those back then. He rode his horse 
found himself a few miles outside Jerusalem in the little town of Bethlehem. And uh, there it was at dusk. The stars were coming out. And he described this. He says, I went to sing in the church where they said, this is the spot where Jesus is born, the church of the nativity, it is called. And so he's in this spot, and he felt surrounded by God's spirit. Now, remember, he's all burned out, tired, and exhausted. And he says, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born. When the whole church was ringing hour after hour with splendid hymns of praise to God, again and again it seemed as if I could hear voices I knew well telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. So he kind of had a spiritual experience. He could sense God's Spirit doing great things. So he returned to the United States, and it was three years later, and it was Christmas of 1868. And so he had taken those stirrings, and and he had put them into a poem. And uh, that poem would be the lyrics to A Little Town of Bethlehem, but it still needed music. And so his organist, this guy I referred to before, Louis Redner, was struggling to compose the music. And so Philip Brooks would say, so Lewis, are you ready? It's coming up. It's this Sunday. Oh, I'll be ready. I'll be ready. I'll be ready. But, you know, music, the muse didn't strike him quite like he wanted. So poor Lewis is like, oh my gosh, this is tomorrow morning. And I am struggling with this tune. I can't seem to get this thing together. And so here's what Lewis Redner said. My brain was confused about the tune. But I was roused from sleep late in the night, hearing an angel strain whispering in my ear, and seizing a piece of music paper, I jotted down the treble of the tune as we now have it. And on Sunday morning, before going to church, I filled in the harmony. Here, you thought your Sunday morning was busy. He wrote what would become one of the most celebrated hymns. He wrote the music harmonies that morning. And so they sang... And what they thought would just be a one-and-done carol, we're going to sing this thing, and it will be great, and, and that'll be it. They had no idea that this carol would ever become, how famous that it was and how well-loved. And so, little town of Bethlehem, the story of Jesus' birth in verses 1 and 2. O little town of Bethlehem, we just sang this, how still we see thee lie, that stillness Because this is a small, little, tiny town. Not much changed from Jesus' time, by the way, in 1865 when Philip Brooks was there. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And the stars and moon would be the only light, remember, because there's no street lights. And uh, this is a little town, about 150 people, and so there wasn't much to it, so it would be very dark. Verse 2, for Christ is born of Mary, and gathered all above, while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth. So... Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? 
Well, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 prophesied 700 years before Jesus. Here's what it said. But you Bethlehem Ephrathah, which means place of fruitfulness. That's the Ephrathah part. Bethlehem's literally house of bread. And so it will be house of bread, place of, of, sorry, fruitfulness, not faithfulness, fruitfulness. Said, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And then verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for they then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So Bethlehem, why this little town? Well, Micah 700 years before had prophesied it, and here it was coming to, to bear. It's a little difficult. Some say, well, you know, Jesus arranged a bunch of these prophecies to fit himself. Don't you think this one might be a little challenging? You know, like, you know, here he is on the way to Bethlehem. And hurry up, Mary, get there. I don't want to be born in Samaria. You know, so um, that was one of the prophecies. But Bethlehem had a distinct biblical history. Even though this is a tiny little town, and it's so tiny and insignificant that even when the wise men come and the priests look up, oh, yes, they quote this verse to Herod, and they still don't bother to go a couple of miles outside the city to check it out. So it just wasn't considered an important town. Yet this is where, first of all, um, we find that the patriarch wife of Rachel uh, was giving birth to Joseph at that point, or I'm sorry, to Benjamin, and she died, and this is where they buried her. So Jacob's wife, Rachel, gives birth to Benjamin. Boaz redeemed Ruth in Bethlehem, and Ruth would become one of the great-great-grandmothers of, of David. And then King David himself was born in Bethlehem. He was anointed in Bethlehem. But by Micah's time in 1700 B.C., only a few hundred years later, after uh, David had been around, it had sunk into insignificance. It was so small that both Joshua 15 and Nehemiah 11, when they're making those lists of cities that you skip over when you're reading through your Old Testament, it wasn't in it. So here's all the important cities, but Bethlehem wasn't even named. And so it didn't have a big, except for this prophecy, nobody really thought this would be amount to anything. So Micah now, here he is, 700 B.C., and he's addressing mostly the southern kingdom, Judah, because only a few years earlier, the northern tribes have been taken away into Assyria. And so they're despondent now in Judah, the southern kingdom with the two remaining tribes. Um, and they have a lot of Israeli refugees that are living there. But their own king, who's a descendant of David, is a vassal to Assyria. And this Assyria, which was the big power at that time, um, and so they thought, well, we've, we've been conquered. This prophecy to David about a, a man sitting on the throne, he's just a puppet. And so they were despondent. There was national despair, maybe a lot like what the people of the Civil War time were feeling. But Micah gives them this promise. So in the midst of darkness and despair, he says, but there's a promise. Don't look at things. And, and in fact, historically, Assyria would not conquer Jerusalem. They, that would wait for the Babylonians after that, some hundred years after this. But God made a promise. He said, there would be one coming from David's lineage, 
And he would be the ultimate king. And this king would be the son of God. And his peace, his kingdom would surpass anything that we can imagine. All human expectations. All human understanding. And this huge promise that's made to Bethlehem. And this this time of despair, when we think of the Civil War, you can see, you know, here's Philip Brooks having this crisis of faith and this burnout time that there's kind of God is using both of those times to bring about this carol. So in Jesus' time, when Philip Brooks was, was riding his horse in the dusk with the stars starting to come out, it was still the tiny, insignificant village that it had been seven year, 700 years earlier. I mentioned it was about 150 people that were there. There were no crossroads, no nord- notable resources. It was just a quiet little shepherding community because it was near the temple. There were shepherds that were in Bethlehem. That's where they would often keep some of the sheep. But nobody would be impressed by Bethlehem. Few would ever dream that this would be the place where the promises that God had given would really take place. One author named Ralph Stockman put it this way, the hinge of history hangs on the door of a Bethlehem stable. Imagine that, something small, something insignificant to their eyes that became one of the most important cities in history. And what this ends up, and the theme of today is that that insignificant things can come when God puts his hand on to become extraordinary. Nobody expected little, tiny, insignificant Bethlehem to be much of anything. But God's ways are outside ours, aren't they? Why pick this tiny little village? People had forgotten about the prophecy, didn't think it was important. And here's the whole thing changing. The everlasting light would come into those dark and quiet streets. The hopes and fears of all the years since Adam's fall and Abraham's promise are met the night of Jesus' birth in this little town of Bethlehem. God selected a small place to do a big thing because God loves to take the unlikely, the obscure, and do mighty things with it. Think about that. Do you ever feel you might be a little bit obscure in the world? But God says, if I can take an obscure town, I can take an obscure little church or a person and I can do whatever my purposes are. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28 says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So God still chooses the weak things to shame the strong. So God uses ordinary things to accomplish the extraordinary. That's kind of our theme today. God uses ordinary things to accomplish the extraordinary because he doesn't do it often in the big flashy ways that we want. Have you ever seen God use seemingly insignificant people to make a big impact on your life. Somebody, an incident or a person, makes a passing comment and they might have said something when you were a a kid or a teenager and you've held that in your heart. Could have been something great. Could have been something not so great. You know, I remember... Karen once shared that, uh, you know, because she's a singer, and she just had a choir director in about seventh grade that goes, you have a very odd voice. (laughs) And so she thought, oh, I can't sing. 
Imagine that. You know, so while, you know, other people are telling you what you can't do in God, he's telling you what you can do. So maybe God used some insignificant people in your life, some events that didn't seem important that turned out to be huge, something small and overlooked. And maybe you are that person in somebody else's life. Do you ever feel like you're small? Do you ever feel overlooked in the world that you're in? What effect has that had on you? If you feel like, I'm nothing, I'm obscure, I'm a nobody. But God is showing us through this prophecy of Bethlehem and and this carol that reminds us of that prophecy that God still chooses the small and insignificant things. So if you think you're unimportant, that you're kind of weak, then I'd like to tell you this morning, you are exactly who God wants to use because then he can release his power through you if you're yielded to him. And you say, God, take my gifts. They're not much, but... Now I'm just going to let you work. And see, we look through human eyes at things, at what looks dramatic, and everybody is all excited now that Kanye West is, you know, a Christian, and he's speaking, you know, through um, in, in Houston. And so, you know, and maybe that's a great thing, but in my many decades of life, I've seen more than one celebrity, and they burn bright for a short time, and then suddenly they're gone, and they fall away. I hope that's not going to be true with Kanye, but everybody gets excited. But what if some little 70-year-old lady that cleans office buildings to try to survive, and, and we look and go, oh, Kanye, he could do so much more than this little cleaning lady in some building. And yet in heaven, you might find, you know, she did huge things through her ministry. And maybe Kanye will. We hope. I'm not... Not saying anything against them, but just, but we raise celebrity up. If an athlete or somebody says, I'm a Christian and everybody gets all excited, but God loves to use the insignificant people. And maybe he'll use those significant people, but he can use the insignificant and does that the most often. So we see our life and circumstances through heavens, not through heaven's eyes, but human eyes. But God sees things in mysterious ways far above our own. We can't even fathom the things that God's up to. And if we just say, God, I'm available, God will value our humility and our availability more than our self-confidence and our talent. Again, not saying that talented people can't be used of God, but we tend to think they're the only ones that get used by God, don't we? So, a little town of Bethlehem, verse 3. How silently... How silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So the gift of God is not a big dramatic announcement all over the world not the big flashes of lightning and everybody will see it that's the second coming it's it's going to come but not the first coming the gift of christmas did not come wrapped up in purple robes it didn't have the crown jewels surrounding his head didn't really even have the halo that the renaissance painters loved to paint over jesus they were just ordinary people he was an ordinary looking baby but there was something extraordinary happening that Gift came to the earth quietly among the livestock in a backwater village 
wrapped in the rags of commoners. And Philip Brooks teaches us in this verse, we don't earn this gift. It isn't something that you do and you're special, so God gives it to you, this gift of Jesus. This wondrous gift can only be received by meekness, where meek souls will receive him still. The dear Christ enters in. We're like a pauper with outstretched hands. Not some spectacular person who has to earn it all and and say, here's my big talents that I have to share with you, God. Aren't you lucky? But God wants the meek, the ordinary, the the not so uh, flashy kind of people, common people, and he can use big things. God uses ordinary things to accomplish the extraordinary. So how can God use you? in a significant way, even though you might feel like you're insignificant and ordinary. But look around you in your ordinary world and see what God wants to do with you to touch the people around you because that's what he's calling for us to do. And he just might accomplish something extraordinary with you, the ordinary person in an ordinary situation, to do something extraordinary and you never know. The people that you touch with your kindness or your love or your serving, your giving, might have a big impact in the world. We don't know. The miraculous gift of Christmas started ordinary to become extraordinary. And now for the last stanza of a little town of Bethlehem. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide in us, our Lord Emmanuel. So, the miraculous gift of Christmas, God created the universe, and this very God that created all that we can see and beyond has come to live in our heart in a mystery that we still can hardly understand. We've said back in the first carol of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, of course, means God with us. And so that's what Philip Brooks is seizing on. This title of God coming to us. God being born so he could dwell in us. Did you catch the language? You know, that cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. So there's life, this temple we mentioned last last time or the time before, that we are the temple. You don't have to go somewhere. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. God lives in you. You are the temple because Emmanuel, God with us, came to abide in us in a relationship of love. And that love makes all the difference, doesn't it? There were two missionaries that were being held for ransom by bandits in the hills of Columbia. And they were kept in this filthy hut, and they, and their captors told them not to speak. They weren't even allowed to talk. They had no way to communicate with one another, except through sing, hand signals, but no words. So on Christmas, one missionary took little pieces of straw that were on the floor, and he started arranging them. And he spelled out a word, pointed to the, to the floor, with the other missionary and in the dim light of the hut the other missionary smiled broadly and there in the straw on the floor was this single word Emmanuel and he smiled and was excited they didn't talk 
but it made all the difference that the love of God came into that hut. The name that gives encouragement in the straw, Emmanuel. And in the straw of Bethlehem on a special night, love for all mankind was born. So God uses extraordinary things to accomplish, uses ordinary things to accomplish the extraordinary. Couple more, one more verse, Zechariah 4, 6, and 10. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And then verse 10, who dares despise the day of the small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. So the uncommon, the ordinary, Zechariah calls it the small things. The things that nobody notices. Don't despise those small things. So have you ever despised the day of the small things? Are you making the mistake of bypassing what looks like little opportunities that don't look like much because you're looking for some big exciting thing to come instead? Commentator F.B. Meyer said this, Do not wait to do a great thing. The opportunity may never come. But since little things are constantly claiming your attention, do them for a great motive, for the glory of God. Philip Brooks adds this, It is while you are patiently toiling at the little tasks of life that the meaning and shape of the great whole of life dawns on you. The little things, little town of Bethlehem, uncommon people that looked common. Are you one of those? Look around for people to love. Do kind deeds for a neighbor. Sit with a coworker who needs to talk. And something great can come from something small. I'll close with the Howard Thurman wrote this poem, The Work of Christmas. He said, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among brothers. And I would add, to express God's love to the world in your small little day-by-day actions. So what work of Christmas will sum up your Christmas? The gifts that you will receive later this week, the decorations, the food, or an unnoticed spectacular birth that changed everything and has changed you forever. Let's pray. Lord God, Help us to see ourselves as mighty tools in your hand, even if those tools are small and uncommon or common. And do an uncommon work through us, Lord, because we're yielded to you. And we're not limited by how spectacular we are or aren't or what our talents are or aren't, but we're impressed, Lord, by you working through us, weak, common vessels. And do uncommon things through us, extraordinary things, Lord, that we can live out a little town of Bethlehem's message to the world and show your love to them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.